You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. All right, can everybody hear me? All right, let's rise for the reading of God's word, please. Thank you. All right, so this is from Luke 15, 11 through 32. It's on page 874 in the Pew Bibles. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants had more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Please have a seat. Thank you. Let's pray. I'm going to pray Paul's prayer from Ephesians 3, 14 to 21 over us. I've been praying this for all of us this morning. When I think of this, I fall on my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you 
with inner strength through his spirit, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow in God's love strongly. And I pray that you may have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience the love that is beyond comprehension. Then you will be made complete with the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we could ask or think. Glory to God in the church, in Christ Jesus, through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Once upon a time, not too long ago, Americans sat down in their living rooms and tuned into the CBS radio network to relax after a long day. But around 8 p.m., breaking news reports started to stream in and fill the airwaves. The first reports seemed innocent enough um, as they interrupted the live music program. They were simply just reports of weird explosions reported on Mars a couple days prior. But then seemingly unrelated reports came in of objects falling on a farm in New Jersey. And then after that, there were reports of invaders and people thought, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's an enemy from across, across the pond. But it was Martians. The War of the Worlds had begun. That, that's a true story, by the way. Um, like, I'm not making it up. Um, I didn't tell you all the details, though. Um, so, sorry. Uh, the story is true. But it was a radio retelling, a radio drama, of the H.G. Wells novel, War of the Worlds, and it was directed by the famed director Orson Welles. Um, the scary part is, people actually believed it. Um, Henry Cantrell, a professor at Harvard, says that he estimates about 1.7 million radio listeners believed that this really was happening. That silly little story is a terrifying real-life example of why the stories we believe matter. So as I was thinking about the stories we believe when Keith asked me to preach, I was thinking, well, what lies do I have a tendency to believe and what stories combat those lies? And I was immediately brought to the story of the prodigal son. I think it's probably Jesus' most famous parable. Um, it's also one of my favorite paintings. Um, Rembrandt does an amazing job. You could stare at this painting for hours and find new things in it. And it's not just painters who are amazed by this. There's music by the Rolling Stones. There's a wonderful Keith Green song. Like, there's art that abounds because of this story, because this story and the truths that it teaches have the power to change our lives. Jesus knew the power of stories. That's why he used this parable. He was sharing a story to help his audience stop believing the lies that love was conditional. The main point of this parable is that love is unconditional. That is a gift that you only receive. You can't earn it. You can't escape the pains of life with pleasure to find love. You simply receive it from the Father. 
I want us to understand how hard that is. Because if you're anything like me, you struggle with the idea of unconditional love. Because love has just been a conditional thing that you've experienced. So I, when I was asked, what am I going to preach on? Well, I've, I thought, yes, of course, I'll do this, but should I? And I was reminded of how when I was first coming to actually surrender to Jesus, it was at Passion in 2017, and Francis Chan was preaching on the love of God. So I figured, what better lie to address than God doesn't love me? Love is conditional. The truth of the gospel and the truth that this parable teaches is that love is unconditional. This parable is going to force us to wrestle with that truth, and it's going to show us what living out that lie looks like through two ways, the way of the prodigal and the way of the performer. But it's also going to show us what living the truth will look like through the way of the father. So I want us to look back at these characters and examine the results of their lives, starting with the prodigal. This man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming. So he distributed his assets, and not many days later, the son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate on foolish living. I have to wonder why this son doubted his father's unconditional love. His actions reveal in his leaving that he doesn't trust his father to give him what's best. And that leads him to not really see himself as a beloved son. He's having an identity crisis. He's wondering, who am I and who is this father? This triggers fear, anxiety, and that leads to desperate actions, running away from home to try and find peace. I think this probably rings a little too true for all of us in the room. Some of us have been deeply hurt by earthly fathers. Some of us have been either directly or indirectly neglected. That is not God's heart for you, and I'm sorry. He wants you to see in this parable what the love of the Heavenly Father looks like. So in this younger son's identity crisis, doubting everything that he's known, entrapped in his fear, looking for love everywhere except his father's arms, after cutting off his family, embracing this rugged individualistic lifestyle, he spends his money on reckless living, and it seems to afford some satisfaction, right? He's ceased looking for his identity in his father, so now he's trying to find his identity in everything except his relationship to his father. In a sense, he's very much like us and very much like Adam and Eve, pridefully doubting that the Heavenly Father loves them, so they reach out to take control for themselves. It's a lot like the uh, famed poet, uh, well, maybe he was a philosopher, I don't know, but at least a poet, Johnny Lee, once sung, I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces. Oh, but that's so true of us. The world, the flesh, and the devil tempt us to define truth for ourselves, to numb the pain caused by the lie. It says, you can 
drink a little bit more. You can uh, numb the pain with a one-night stand. Heck, you can numb the pain with an emotional fling with your coworker. Besides, you're, you're not sleeping with her. It's okay. Um, you, can, uh, you can take another glance at the gym. That's fine. You're not hurting anyone. You can buy that new gadget. You can put it on your credit card. It's okay. Culture celebrates this pride, literally. I did it my way, sang Sinatra. You guys know what the University of Illinois slogan is? The power of I. Western culture, particularly Midwestern Americans, I think we, uh, we idolize this rugged, individualistic cowboy lifestyle a little bit too much. And you might think, that's not me. I don't really like cowboys all that much, but um, <laughs> think about it this way. Um, maybe it's not cowboys. Maybe you love the young, independent artist who broke free from all of the social constraints that were entrapping them and found their own way. It's the same result. We're left alone trying to define our own way through life. You might argue and protest, well, what does it matter if I'm not hurting anyone else? Friends, I hate to be the bearer of the painfully obvious bad news. That way of thinking is foolish. Every action we take affects those around us. Did you see what the father had to do? This was an agricultural society. There are no banks. He's selling his land, He's, which means there's less land for him to farm, so people are going to lose their jobs. The younger brother is now going to have less inheritance to be able to farm. The younger brother is insulted because he's supposed to be the head patriarch after the father goes away, and the son is saying, I don't trust my dad, and I don't trust you either, big brother. This father now looks like a failure. This shame is why God said in Exodus 20, when he was giving the Ten Commandments, to honor your father and mother. And while later in Deuteronomy, dishonoring your father and mother was punishable by death. It sent shockwaves through communities. Even if this boy wanted to stay home, he couldn't. He had burned the bridge. So you might wonder, well, uh, what happens if it doesn't work out? And we see that. He spent everything and a severe famine struck. He had nothing. So he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Do you see how his pride, his vain attempts to be his own savior, had spiraled deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into a pit of despair? This little Jewish boy ran away from home. He was living a culturally taboo lifestyle that failed to satisfy. And when losing his wealth and succumbing to the crashing economy, he sought employment from a Gentile, which is adding more insult to injury. And to make matters worse, it's a job that would have been the most taboo job a Jewish person could have had, feeding pigs. And as if that wasn't bad enough, he's so hungry he wants to eat trash. His sin wasn't going to just send him to hell. It was making him live in a hell on earth. He had abused grace, and pride had, has become his downfall. 
But friends, this is just one way that living out the lie that love is conditional, that it's not really real, affects us. And this parable shows us another example of how it looks. And most of us fluctuate between these two and we transition into the other one when we come to our senses and realize we're not gonna be able to numb the pain with pleasure. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have had more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I know what I'll do. I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna go to my father and I'm gonna say, father, I have sinned against you and in heaven's sight, I'm not worthy to be called your son anymore. Please uh, just make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and ran to his father. Did you uh, notice what's missing in his little apology speech? I'm sorry. You want to know why? Because he's not. He admits he's wrong. He wants the pain to go away. He's longing for mercy, like we all do. But he's not willing to repent. He's not willing to see himself as a son yet. He wants to go home as a slave. He still thinks his father's love isn't real. He's turning into a performer trying to work for grace. He's just following the example of his older brother. Verse 25 says, the older son was in the field and he came near the house and heard music and dancing. Why do you think this older brother was out in like the field? He replied to his father in verse 29, look, I've been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders but you never even gave me a goat that I could celebrate with my friends. You see why? He's slaving away. He's trying to earn love. And he's never done anything wrong, so logically he deserves it. That's the lie that the slave believes. And let's be honest, how many of us walk through life like this? How many of us are trying to get our parents' attention, our coworkers' attention, our classmates, let's be honest. How many of you are trying to prove to yourself that you're worth something? Because that's what I'm doing. We believe this lie of cause and effect. And while it is true that our actions have consequences and people will act, the lie is that your actions are the only actions that matter. You, me, we are not God. Amen. That lie that I'm God, that my actions are what control the outcomes, lead us to believe that we can either act like a prodigal and get noticed, or act like a performer and do enough to never screw up so that we'll be accepted. It's all toxic shame avoidance. We're just trying to run away from hurt and pain. We're trying to prove to ourselves that we mean something, that we matter because of what we've done. We're enslaved to the fear of men. We are foolishly trying to be someone from what we do instead of allowing what we do to flow from who we are. Our being loved and made by God. Our being safe and sound in his arms. After being enslaved to numb the pain 
Performance simply becomes the next master. The master of another drink, of living with your partner, of indulging in another bite that just won't hurt, of, you know, just putting it on the credit card failed to make you feel okay. So you begin to think, you know, I can hustle at work. I can, uh, I can get that 4.2 GPA. I can, uh, I can skip that meal to stay thin. Or I can get another rep in at the gym. You know what, I'll just be a nice person and that should be enough. But no matter how hard I run on the performance treadmill, I cannot run away from the shame and I hate myself for it. Sons who see themselves as performers see their dad as an angry judge to appease. I think that's where many well-intended Christians fall for this lie. They see God as an angry judge, so you just try to do something to serve him. And you hope that Jesus' teachings will be the self-help tool to make your life matter. You think, sure, I'll come home, but who are you to love me unconditionally? I'm not worthy to be your son. You're not allowed to love me. You see the harm that this pride of life has? We like to think, you know, this older brother's self-righteous. He at least looks good. Sure, he appears good on the surface, but underneath he's terrified. He's waiting for the shoe to drop. He's afraid that his dad's going to stick his nose up. And he resents his dad for it. He hates him. Performers long to hear praise. They're striving to avoid the shame of failure. And since they view love as this transaction, they try to meet the bill. But in their efforts to meet the bill, they miss out on life. This older son is out in the fields while his dad is celebrating, delighting in life. We're working so hard that we miss the gift that rest has for us in God's arms. Worse yet, when we see true love, we get angry because it confronts us with the reality that love is not something we can earn. Did you see in verse 28, it says, then he became angry and didn't want to go in. Pride will keep us from tasting and seeing that the Lord is good at the banquet that he is preparing for us. You cannot come in to the feast in chains, and you cannot serve him in chains. Your identity is not as a slave needing to perform. Your identity is as a beloved son. So do you see how living out this lie as love is this conditional thing to be appeased makes us fluctuate between these two extremes? makes you wonder, is there another way out of this spiral? Friends, that's where the gospel breaks in. That's the whole point of this parable. Luke 15, one to two sets up the context. The Pharisees come to Jesus as he's feasting with tax collectors and sinners, and they scoff at him. And then Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, And finally, this parable to teach them about the heart of the heavenly father. So let's examine the heart of the father. 
The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Even at the beginning of the parable, we start to see what this father is like. He's generous, even to rebellious, sinful children. The son who runs away and the self-righteous son who just sits there quietly and takes his share of the inheritance without any objections. This father chooses to love his children because he loves them, not because they've done something to earn it. His father is teaching the painful lesson that unconditional love hurts. But it's based off of his character. I think the partial understanding of this character is what drove the potical home. Notice in verse 20, he got up and went to his father, and while his son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am not worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers, put a sandal on his feet. Slaughter the fattened calf, let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Friends, if our view determines if our view of someone determines our response to them, then what does the response of the father show about how he views this son? Except that he loves him unconditionally. This father is defined by compassion. Let's look at what it looks like. He grieves the loss of his son. He's slow to anger, longing for his son to come home, patiently waiting. And then when he sees him while he's far off, he runs out and embraces him. He cuts off the repentant speech, forgiving his son, not because his son has done enough to come home, but because he loves his son. And then he showers him, generously welcoming him home. Friends, this love rescues. Remember that this son is an outlaw. He dishonored his family. The community wants to kill him. And the father literally pulls up his pants and runs after his son and covers him before anyone gets the chance to stone him. And then he restores him. He gives him undeserved gifts. He calls him a son. He puts on the family robe. He puts on a ring. He puts on sandals for his weary feet. And he's merciful. This act of mercy in the father covering the shame, taking responsibility for his son's mistakes, freed the son from having to pay the debt so that he could be in relationship with his dad, so that he could join the feast. Friends, this is the heart of God. A missional God who loves the people who hurt him, who doesn't write anyone off as too far gone. No doubt Jesus is surprising the Pharisees with the truth of God's love. He demolishes the lie that love is conditional. He is the good shepherd that leaves the 99 for the one. As Luke 15, seven says, angels rejoice at the repentance of one sinner. 
And who does God love? You might think it's just the saved, but uh, John 3.16 would say otherwise. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. So who does God love? Everyone. That's what this parable is about. God, our Father, made us and loves us, but we, prideful prodigals and performers, believe a lie and we run from him and we seek pleasure or performance to escape the shame that we have caused. But God, being rich in mercy, like a loving father, runs out, sending a rescuer, Jesus, his son, to us to free us from our enslavement. All we have to do is be humble enough to accept it. And when we do, we are renewed. We are restored into the image of our heavenly father. He wants to dress us, to bring us into a feast. 1 Timothy 2.4 says he desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Why do you think he sees us like this? As the beloved, as the glorious inheritance that Ephesians 1 talks about? Friends, it's because love is who God is. When Moses asked to see God, God says, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. We see that in this parable. The love of the father that's compassionate, gracious. But we also see the judgment of sin paid. And it's the father who pays for it. God paid the debt for our sins. He covered our shame. That's what the apostle John was talking about in 1 John 4, 16. And so we know and rely on the love God for, has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is what my friend reminded me of in the wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, that Dane Ortland is speaking about when he says, love is essential to his being. God is love. Christ is God. Therefore, Christ is love, love naturally. He may as well cease to be as cease to be love. Friends, this is love. Love is unconditional. How will you respond to that truth this morning? Will you accept it? Or will you reject it? Will you humble yourself like the prodigal son and fall into the arms of your father this morning? Is pride keeping you from coming home to the father today? C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says that so many of us are settling for mud pies when God wants to give us a vacation on the beach. Friends, I would entice you, please repent of your pride. You may not realize, but you're longing for pig slop. God wants so much more for you. He wants you to come home to the banquet. Please don't settle for anything less than that. 
Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're afraid that you can't come home. I want to remind you of the words of Jesus in John 6, 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. John Bunyan confronts our objections to this so eloquently. I'm a great sinner. I will never cast you out. But I'm an old sinner. I will never cast you out. I'm hard-hearted. I will never cast you out. But God, I'm backsliding, and I, I've never done anything right, and I have nothing to give to you. I will never cast you out. Why will God never cast us out? Because he is full of faithful and loyal love. It's who he is. He loves us because it's his character, not because of what we've done to deserve it. Think about it like this, friends. Why do you put a child's painting on a fridge? Is it because it's better than the Rembrandt that we looked at earlier? No. It's because you love them. Because they made something beautiful. It doesn't matter that it's not a Renaissance masterpiece. It was made by your loved child. Real love is unconditional. And that's good news because it means you cannot mess up the salvation of God. But it's bad news if you're trying to earn it. Friends, just receive it this morning. If you are feeling stirred by the Spirit, I pray, grieve your sin. Stop trying to numb the pain of your shame with pleasure and with performance. Grieve the sin. Repent. Come home. Seek forgiveness. Appeal to your Father's mercy. And find generous storehouses of grace. When we believe the truth that love is conditional, we are free. I'm sorry, when we believe that it's conditional, we're enslaved. When we believe that it is unconditional, we are freed to receive it as a gift. And when we receive it as a gift from our compassionate Father, naturally we become more and more compassionate. That's why Jesus said, be compassionate as your Father is compassionate in Luke 6. We're called to become like our Heavenly Father, to come home to our true selves as God's children, and to find life and compassionate unity between God and his church family now and forever when King Jesus returns. I want to warn you that compassionate people do not stand outside the party angry at grace like the older brother. You see the end of the parable? He became angry and didn't want to go in, so his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied, Look, I've been slaving for all these years, and I never disobeyed. You never gave me a goat that I could celebrate with. But this son of yours, who devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughter a fattened calf for him? Son, he said to him, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That is the end of the parable. Jesus ended the parable on a cliffhanger on purpose. The tax collectors and sinners represented by the prodigals were coming home. 
But the Pharisees, represented by these older brothers, were standing far off, angry, refusing to embrace the unconditional love of God. So in the same way that the father came out for his prodigal son, God, through Jesus, was coming to the Pharisees, calling them home in this moment. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and whoever will let me in, I will come in and feast. Friends, God is knocking. He's not going to force his way in the door, but he longs for you to let him in. So will you receive his unconditional love this morning? And then will you allow that love to let you become more compassionate? Will you let go of the bitterness and the unforgiveness by grieving and lamenting the hurts that you've suffered, the hurts that you've inflicted on yourself, and the hurts that you've committed towards others? Will you humble yourself to seek forgiveness and to forgive others? And will you partner with your father and in your brothers in seeking reconciliation? In closing, I want to provide a little illustration. I'm a visual learner. So when we, when we doubt and believe a lie, we fear, and it sends us into this cycle of performance, and it leads us into death and decay. And as we've seen in this parable, it's embodied in two main ways. We run away from our Heavenly Father's love, like prodigals, to numb our pain, or we try to serve our dad and perform. And we fluctuate between these two extremes as we embody this lie. But friends, we can move from this prideful way of life and embrace love through humbly accepting Jesus in our place. The truth is that unconditional love is what is in store. It's what's offered for us by God. And when we trust in that truth, it pushes out the fears that drive our performance, that lead us to delight and worship with our Heavenly Father, no matter the circumstances. This doesn't mean that we're going to have every hurt relationship reconciled. And it doesn't mean that we're going to do everything perfect this side of heaven. And it doesn't mean that the pains of life will be numbed. It offers us so much more. The cost is great to love, but the Father gets his family back. It's what's offered for all of us. It's rest for the bur people burning out on performance. It's peace that the earthly pleasures can never provide. But best of all, it's peace with our Heavenly Father as we join him in his ministry of reconciliation. The Great Commission, bringing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I'm praying that you guys receive it this morning. Heavenly Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. so undeserving of your grace, unworthy, and yet you still choose to love me. Forgive me of the ways that I lean into that lie. Please help me move from one degree 
of trust to deeper and deeper trust with you. Looking to the cross, I pray for everyone in this room that God, if they have not yet received the truth of the gospel, God, you would stir in their hearts to see the love of the Father. Holy Spirit, move in this place. I invite you, perform a miracle. Soften the hearts of the parables and the, soften the hearts of the prodigals and the performers here. Help us to become more and more like you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. At New City, we don't wanna just be hearers of the word, but doers also. And we do that three particular ways. The first thing we do is we reflect. We're gonna take a moment or two. We're gonna bow our heads and we're gonna think upon what we heard. Maybe you see yourself more as the older brother who's looking down and saying, why are these people receiving grace when I'm the one who's being obedient? Why am I not receiving the blessing that they are, the grace that they are, the fattened calf? And maybe you're like the younger brother who has fallen so far and so deep into sin that he doesn't know there's a way out. He has no hope of sonship. Whether you're the older brother or the younger brother, whether you're struggling to come back to the father, offering to be a servant, or whether you're, you won't celebrate someone else's salvation, life, wherever you're at, wherever your heart's at today, we're gonna take a few minutes and reflect in this time. After we've spent a few minutes reflecting, we're gonna take the time to remember what we do in this time of remembering is we remember Christ's death on the cross for us. We take the Lord's Supper as a church. After we've had a few minutes of reflection, we invite you to come up to the front. There's a bowl with bread and a cup with juice. You take the bread, you dip it in the juice, and you take and eat and remember Christ's death until he comes. This, you are, if you have placed your faith in Christ and you're trusting in him for the hope of eternal life, you are welcome to take the Lord's Supper today. And finally, we rehearse. We are going to end our service after reflecting and, remember, and remembering. We're going to praise God through song together as we rehearse what we will be doing in heaven for eternity, making much of our God who loved us and saves us. So let's take up with bow our heads and take a few minutes to reflect. <laughs>